For everyone else, I'll have you turn to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to start in verse 4 here in just a second. I want to kind of reiterate what I started when I first walked up here. Because we as the church, and when I say we as the church, I'm not just talking about the church of Omaha. We, those who call ourselves in the body of Christ, believe and look forward to the return of Christ. We know that all the stuff that's been going on in this world will at one time be done. And the king of kings will set up shop here on earth. And that we will forever be in his, his presence. That he is the prince of peace and that we will get to feel that peace eternally. We look forward to that day. But I have to first start this message with a word of caution. Because for as much as we look forward to the return of Christ, for as much as we look forward to all the things of this life being over, Jesus gives us a very stern, strong warning. And we're going to find this in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I want you to underline or just let it stand out in your mind. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Jump down to verse 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. This word elect here is a reference to us. It's a reference to those who are bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The elect is not some designation for some subgroup of people who have a, a special different dispensation with God. Amen. No, the elect is for everyone filled with the Holy Ghost, marked by His presence, covered by His blood, called by His name. They are the elect. And it's very important that you understand this because we're going to hear this word pop up several times tonight. Tonight I'm going to preach to you on a simple topic and I'm actually hearkening back to a message I've already preached. But this month is going to be all about end times, all about revelation. And to start this series off tonight, we're going to talk about this, called to watch, called to watch. You see, at first glance, it would be easy to say that these verses we read in Matthew 24 are simply a warning not to be deceived by flattering words of men. This is simply Jesus saying, don't listen to the world and its pleasures. Don't allow so-called Christian preachers to deceive you into thinking that there is a way to salvation that will cost you nothing and can be gained by simply saying a Lord's Prayer. And while it is true that Jesus often warned his disciples to avoid false doctrines in general, these passages in Matthew 24 are focused on something far more specific than false worldly teachers 
Look with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. Listen to the first couple words here. Let no man deceive you. Let no man deceive you. Paul is hearkening back to the warning Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 24. But who is Paul talking to in this passage? Thessalonians is written to the church. He's writing to a bunch of people who are already saved, who are in church, the church at Thessalonica. And he specifically is warning them not to be deceived. But then he goes on to explain how the church might be deceived. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day. Okay, let's pause right here. That day is a direct reference to the return of Christ. I don't have time tonight to go through all the scriptures to show you this, but that when it talks about that day, that great and notable day of the Lord, it's only a reference to one singular day, and that is the return of Christ. So he says, let no man deceive you, for by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, what Paul is referring to here is he's warning the saints, you cannot allow pastors, teachers, friends, fellow saints, to deceive you into believing that we will somehow escape all tribulation and that we never have to suffer any kind of persecution, we never have to go through any kind of trials, but that we will be caught away before anything bad ever happens and that God will just whisk us away because we're his bride and we don't have to suffer anything. But Paul is saying, don't allow yourself to be deceived into believing that that day can come before the tribulation. Now, I could go through so many verses from so many different books to show you this, from the Old Testament to the New. For tonight, I'm going to focus on the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. So turn back with me to Matthew 24. And as you're turning there, let me set just a little bit of a backdrop here. This, the year was approximately 35 A.D., and Tiberius was the emperor of the massive Roman Empire. Rome expanded across all of modern-day Europe and beyond. And Israel was but a tiny sliver in a very enormous empire. And for Tiberius and much of the Roman Senate, Jesus and his followers were nothing more than a small blip on their radar. And as for Israel itself, it was under the iron fist of the local Roman leaders. Constant persecution and heavy taxation were the order of the day. I can only imagine that the Jewish people were tired, constantly being put into bondage. But even more than that, I have to imagine the disciples, the followers of Christ, were far more tired. Because they not only suffered persecution from the Roman government, but they suffered persecution from their family, their brothers and sisters who are the Jews who rejected Christ and now were looking at any way possible to hold on to power 
which meant they needed to get rid of the Christians. They needed to get rid of those who called themselves followers of Christ. So these men and women were persecuted on all sides. So now that the backdrop is set, let's look at Matthew 24 and 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his, his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now some look at this passage and read it solely as saying that the Romans were going to completely sack Israel and tear down the temple. And yeah, it refers to that. That all did happen. But as was often the case with Christ, he spoke of both things immediate, but things prophetic also. Jesus was telling his disciples, you see all these buildings, all these things that the world holds on to, that they look to all of this as the signs that they are doing the right thing and the signs of their power. And Jesus is saying that there will not be one stone left upon another. There will not be one government left standing. There will not be one person who can say that they are God when they stand before me. That Christ was going to tear down everything that this world had to offer. And this had to be somewhat of a motivation for those who were listening to him. Those who understood what he was saying. Because he was saying not only shall all of these, these powers be taken down, but he's saying all of these people that are persecuting you, don't stress over it. Because I'm going to take care of all of that. It's not your job to worry about overthrowing the government. You're not called to, to activism. It's not your job to worry about tearing down all these physical, earthly things. You let me handle that. Your call is to evangelism. Your call is to revival. Your call is to the spiritual things, the eternal things. In verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now it is so Important that we read verse 3 before we read anything else past this point. Because if you don't understand what is being discussed, the rest of this can be manipulated and changed to make it fit what you want it to believe. But the disciples, hearing what Jesus has been teaching, hearing about how that Jesus was going to overthrow all of this stuff, they no doubt knew the prophecies of the, of the king that would rule with a rod of iron. And so now they're asking this Jesus, saying, what will be the sign? How will we know that these things are coming to pass? How will we know that the end is near? And now we pick up in verse 4 and listen to what it says. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. So what is he referring to? Again, we're talking about the end. We're talking about the return of Christ. When he's talking about this deception, it's very specific to what he's about to say next. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Now many people would stop right here and say, listen, 
Verse 5 through 7, we look, we see wars, rumors of wars. We see all the stuff happening. Therefore, Jesus can return at any moment. I've been in church for approximately 24 years. I got into church when I was 14 years old. And I can tell you for a large portion of my life in church, I have heard preacher after preacher after preacher stand in the pulpit and say, Jesus can come back right now. He could return at this very moment. And while I do believe that you must be ready at all times, because while I don't believe Jesus can return at this moment, because he's not a man that he should lie, he could come for you. This could be the last breath you take. So we can't hang on to the fact that, oh, well, well I know I got this much longer. I know I can wait until this time. That's not the point of this message. We must always be ready, instant, in season, and out of season. But the reason why it's so important that we hear what Jesus is saying is because that if we don't understand what he is preaching in this sermon, then we might be one of those people where he says, take heed that no man deceive you. This message gets repeated over and over by the, the disciples as well as Jesus. Let no one deceive you. Paul says that if any man preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Paul often referred to this Jesus that we've preached. What I'm getting at is this. If any man preach doctrine contrary to what the word says, then they are not preaching the Christ of the Bible. And I get it. That's a bold statement. But what I'm about to show you is Jesus spoke even stronger of, of this when we get to chapter 25. Now look back to verse 8. He, he just talked about wars and rumors of wars. He talked about famine. He talked about pestilence. He talked about all of these things that when we watch Hollywood movies, it shows the cataclysm of right before he returns. But listen, verse 8 says, All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my namesake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Church, just because the wickedness of this world is growing and evildoers seem to be prospering, we cannot let our love wax cold. We have to remember that the enemy is leading these people down a path to destruction. It's hard, trust me. Sometimes I hear people uh, speaking and preaching and even, even ministers. And I'm not speaking of anyone in this church. But there, there have been ministers who, who I look up to, who, who I look to for many other areas of scripture. And I hear them somehow come to when we talk about uh, revelation and the return of Christ. And, and what they say is in complete disalignment with what the word of God says. And I'm like, how? How can you be so smart in so many areas but willfully just look past all of what Jesus says and what all of Jesus warns about? How he teaches all of this. How is this possible? But as I think about that, it makes what was just said here in verse 11 and 12 jump out so much more. Because much of modern day Christianity preaches this escapism philosophy 
that we can avoid all persecution, that we can escape all tribulation, that God would never allow us to go through any struggles like that. And what happens is, is when all of a sudden that time arrives and they realize, oh, I actually am going through all this tribulation. What else was I wrong about? Maybe God really doesn't love me. Maybe God really doesn't care because he said that I wasn't going to be here and yet here I am. And now we can see how easy it is for many of these people for their love to wax cold and them to become angry and hurt at God because they believed a false doctrine, but now they're accusing God of being the liar. They refused to hear what the word said, but now they're mad at God for how it all turned out. Verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end. Let me just say that part again. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Now, this might sound controversial, but what I'm about to say, but hear me out. The gospel that is referenced right here in verse 14 is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, before you throw any stones, give me a moment to explain. You see, I worry that sometimes we believe that all we need to do is to preach the death, burial, and resurrection, and then we're done. We don't need to do anything else. We teach people Acts 2.38, and then we're done. There's a, there's a French word that we use in Louisiana called lagnap. And lagnap means extra. It means like, the, not it's not really necessary, it's just extra stuff on the side. And I worry that sometimes that's how the church views the book of Revelation and the prophecies concerning his return. Acts 2.38, that's the only necessary part. And all that other stuff is lanyap. It's, it's the extra. Not really necessary, but nice to have. But you see, the gospel that is given to us does not just call us to salvation. But the gospel that Christ preached calls us to sanctification. The word of God does just not teach you that you need to be saved, but it teaches you that you must be changed. We must put on the mind of Christ. Not the mind of Jeremy, but the mind of Christ. We must put on his righteousness and not our righteousness. The gospel message that we must preach is, yes, Christ came. He died. He was buried. He rose again. Yes, he was the only one who could provide for our salvation. Yes, it is his goodness that provided for us to have the opportunity for salvation. But that's not the end of the story. We are called to sanctification. I don't even have this in my notes, but if you look at 1 John chapter 3 and 2, the writer there is talking about how that we don't yet know exactly what we're going to be. We don't fully understand what we're going to look like at that time. But you know what he says? He says, when he returns, then we will know. Why? Because we will be like him. You see, the writer here is saying is that it's not just salvation that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for an image of himself in the church. When Christ returns, he's looking to see himself reflected in the body of Christ. 
And what that means is you can't pick and choose what parts of the scripture you want to apply to your life. You can't pick and choose what, what doctrines you like and what ones you don't and just ignore the rest. It's all essential. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Now notice the progression of what has happened as Jesus is laying all this out. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. He talked about famines and pestilence. He talked about troubles and trials and people betraying. Then he says that those are just the beginning of the end. It's not the end yet, but just the beginning. He, then he goes on and he talks about how the, the, the gospel message must be preached unto all the world before the end can come. And now what we see here is the shift. Because now he speaks about a specific time. And he says, when you shall see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And we're not going to get into that particular topic tonight. But I want you to understand that he says, when you see this, now you really need to make sure you understand what's going to happen next. Look down to verse 21. For then, where is the then? The then is after you see that which was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect sake. Who is the elect? The church. We are the elect. So here is great tribulation, and, and the Bible is saying that if those days had not been shortened, even the very elect wouldn't make it. For if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall, there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Again, how is it possible that the elect are deceived? Because they are looking for a Christ before all of this stuff. They're looking for something that was not preached by Christ. But look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. And the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man and the, in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect. So when is he gathering together his elect? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. And, and where is it that he's coming, by the way? It says he's coming in the clouds. Why? Why is that, why is that specific phrase referenced here? Look back to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When the disciples saw Jesus leaving the earth after he had been risen again, they saw him going up, and then they see him disappear in a cloud. And what do the angels say to them? They say, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, the same way you saw him leave, 
is the same way you're going to see him come. Who were the angels talking to? They weren't talking to sinners. They were talking to the disciples, saying that, hey, those of you who are looking for Christ, this same way that he just left, that's the exact same way you're going to see him come again. This flies directly in the face of much of what is taught in modern Christianity. If you've ever read or seen the, the movies uh, by Tim LaHaye about, um, uh, about the rapture and how that people just disappear, poof, their clothes are neatly folded on the ground and they're gone and nobody has any idea what just happened and they're all looking around and confused. That's not scriptural. What did the verse we just say, read say? It says, then shall the whole world mourn. Why? Because they see the saints of God leaving the earth, receiving, being received in the clouds, and then they know we messed up. All that stuff they've been talking about is actually coming to pass. If it was just that the people disappeared and no idea why, well, sure, there's going to be people upset, but the whole world is not going to mourn, especially not the way that the Bible describes it, how they're going to wish that rocks would fall on them, how they're going to wish that they could die, about how they're going to hide in caves. That level of despair comes from the fact that they now realized, we missed it. And now all that stuff we were warned about is happening, and we're not ready. And all those who were saved, we saw them leave and go into the cloud. All right, that's not even my notes. Okay. Let's look at this phrase, great sound of a trumpet. I'm going to try to hurry here. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And I'm not going to read these verses, but I want to show you the importance of this term trump or trumpet. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 tells us that it's at the last trump. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says that Christ returns in the clouds and is heralded by a trump. Uh, Revelation 11, 15 through 19 tells us that it's at the seventh trumpet. Interestingly, Israel conquered Jericho by walking around the city seven times and blowing the trumpet seven times. In Leviticus, the Day of Atonement is marked by blowing a trumpet in the seventh month. Now, I know that some of you would say at this point, and I, I don't think most anyone here necessarily, I, there would be some people who would say at this point, but, but wait, no man knoweth the day nor the hour. Right? Jesus says that himself, right? It's talked about in different verses. So they say, look, Jesus says no man knows the day nor the hour. We don't, don't even need to worry about it. Not that important. And I could go through multiple books to disprove this. But let me stick here just with the words of Jesus. Look in verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. You ever wonder why he just randomly threw that, that one verse in there after talking about the fig tree and the return of Christ? And the reason that verse is in there is saying, listen, if I said it, it's going to happen. The word of God is forever settled. It doesn't change because it's not popular. He's not going to bend it because it's politically incorrect. He's saying, if I am telling you that all these things will come to pass, then you can take it to the bank. Or you will know that it is going to happen because while heaven and earth shall pass away, 
while all of this is temporary, my word is not. It's eternal. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day, now this is where they get to, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. It's at this moment that some would say, aha, you see, Jesus just told you. You don't know. But listen to what he immediately says right after saying that statement. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And I'll pause right here for a second. Because what is he saying by this? Well, there's one side of the story that we often tell about how this world will just continue on in wickedness until the return of Christ, and that's true. That they're oblivious to everything going on around them until Christ returns, and that's true. But there's another side of the story. Because what was Noah doing during this time frame? Was Noah just out there wandering around with the people, having fun, living it up, not caring? No. He knew that there was an appointed time of God's judgment. And so he worked diligently to carry about what was going to bring salvation. And it wasn't just for him and his family. He preached the possibility of salvation to the people that they could get on the boat too. But the world would not listen. They said, you're crazy. It's never flooded before. That's not going to happen. Much like what many people say now. Why do we care? There's never been a rapture. That's, that's not a thing. That's not going to happen. So they go about their business. Until the day when Noah was instructed to get into the boat. And while he was in the boat, he waited. The end still wasn't yet. He was waiting in the boat. And then Christ, or, or, or the Bible says that God closed the door. And once the door was closed, that was it. So here's what we see. The man of God preaching for many, many, many years, warning that this was going to happen. And then we get to a specific time frame where now God instructs Noah, you've preached your message and you can continue to do so, but I want you to get into a place of safety. I want you to hide in here, but the end's still not yet. And you're going to look and you're going to wait and you're going to watch. And then I'm going to close the door. Church, all those who have come before us who have taught and preached about the return of Christ, were doing what Noah did up until a point. And thus it is what we are supposed to do. But there will come a time when great tribulation will come upon us. But then we can step in the boat. What I mean by that is this. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, when God finally said, now it's my turn to bring about vengeance upon Egypt, they hadn't left Egypt yet. They were still in Egypt. But God's hand was there covering them while he was bringing about tribulation to, the, to Egypt. And so it is for the church that while we are here, while we are called to a message, while we are preaching the gospel, we do not need to be afraid because just like God's hand protected his people in Egypt, so it is that God's hand still protects his people in the tribulation. 
God has not magically become weakened or, or unable to protect his people because the devil is angry, because there's tribulation. God is still all-powerful. God is still able to protect his people. Now look what happens in verse 42. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Again, someone look at this and say, see again, it's just saying, don't, you don't need, don't need to worry about it. You don't know. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord comes. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. They were working. They were in the field. They were plowing the field. They were working the meal. They were doing everything. But only some of them were watching. Only some of them were ready. I'll show you in a minute here, but I, I believe that even this is a, is a reference to the church. Because while both people were doing what they were supposed to do, while both people were working the land, only one was watching. And they disappeared. They were gone. They were called up. And the other was left. And then he says something here that I had to read over several times. And I, and I preached this message before and I preached this kind of topic many, many times before. But, but it, it hit me kind of hard this time. It said, but if the good man of the house had known in what watch the Lord would return, he wouldn't have suffered his house to be overtaken. What does it mean, the good man of the house? It means the person who is in charge, the head of the house. And while we can look at the family unit and say that that's the spiritual leader of the house, it's their job to make sure that his people, his family are ready, that they are watching for the return of Christ, also a reference to pastors and ministers, Bible study teachers. It's saying that if those who had influence over others, if they had been doing what they were supposed to do, had been teaching his people to watch for the return of Christ, if they would have been educating and teaching his people to look for the return of the king, they wouldn't have been overtaken. As a thief. So I say this because sometimes we hear these messages and in our hearts we say, well, yeah, I believe, I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. I, I believe that, you know, immediately after the tribulation, I believe all that stuff. So got it. Not worried about it. But are you doing your part to make sure that those who are in your circle of influence also know, also understand that they are also watching or do you take the hands-off approach and say, no, I'll let them figure it out on their own. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just be over here. I'll just do me. I'll believe what I believe and ignore it. Because what's happening is, is you're leaving those people in a position where they are not ready or watching for the return of Christ. And I, I, I am not saying this to cast stones at anyone. It struck me hard, too, because... While I stand up here and I talk about this stuff, do I do a good job of always sharing it with other people in my life? And Am I able and willing to even bring up this topic to other believers that I know who believe very contrary to this? And 
Is it easier just to avoid all confrontation and just ignore it? Don't even worry about it. Don't even address it. Just let it go. I don't want to be the good man that didn't prepare his house and left him in a position to be overtaken as a thief. Verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now turn with me to Matthew 25. And I'm going to go through a couple verses here. It's a very familiar passage. It's one I've referenced many times. I've heard Pastor Powell, Pastor Lucas, I've heard many people reference this. But you have to know that this passage, that this parable that Jesus is teaching is directly linked to what he's talking about in being ready for his return. It is not a new thought. It's not like, oh, this is a whole different sermon. It has nothing to do with this stuff before. No, it is a continuation of what he's just talking about, about not being deceived. He says in verse 20, chapter 25, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. The word virgins here is referencing the church. It's referencing those who are pure. We could say it like this. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto ten saints, ten churches, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, No, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. These were five virgins, meaning spiritually clean people. These were five, if you want to say it this way, Holy Ghost filled people. But because they were not ready, because they slumbered and slept and they, they did not keep their light full, because they were not watching for the return, when the bridegroom came, the five foolish said, hey, let us in too. We preach Jesus. We were baptized in your name. We taught Bible studies. We brought about revivals and all this stuff. But the bridegroom said, I don't know you. I don't know you. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Let me close with some final thoughts. The point of this message is not to bring fear, because we will be here during the tribulation. In fact, the point of this message is simply to bring clarity to what God wants us to do during this time. Daniel 11, 32 and 33 tells us 
what the role of the believer is during this time. It says that they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. It's saying that those that are watching, those who know what is coming to pass, those who are ready, not only are they ready for themselves to go, but they are now empowered and positioned to teach others. Hey, this is what Jesus said. These are the signs of his coming. This is the tribulation that he taught about. This is all those things. And we have put ourselves in a position to be a part of that great revival. We are called to instruct others to, as Jude says, pull them from the fire. Meaning that ignorance to the scripture about the end time is not only wrong, but it is an abdication of your purpose. We must view this world from God's perspective and not the world's. But we cannot do that if we do not know what the Bible says about his coming. You cannot be strong and do exploits. You cannot instruct many if you yourself don't know what's going on. But it says that they that do know, they that understand, will be able to instruct many. Number two, there are two major reasons as to why some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. First, many will say that God has not appointed us to wrath. But if you read Revelation chapter 12, it very clearly shows that the tribulation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24 and what's talked about by John in Revelation 12 is not God's wrath. It's Satan's. You read these passages and you see that it says that Satan has come down unto you having great wrath. Why? Because he knows he hath but a short time. Essentially what's, what it's saying is that Satan at that moment figures out, I messed it up. I missed it. And now I know that I have but a short time. So then there's tribulation. Read in Re I strongly read, Re read Revelation 12. Because while it talks about the great tribulation, it specifically says who the Antichrist, who this is, the, 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 the Satan is going to be persecuting. The church. But if the church isn't here, how can he be persecuting the church? Right? Okay. <laughs> and it's true, God has not appointed his church to wrath. But what it means here specifically is God has not appointed his church to his wrath, to his judgment, to his punishment. Because we that are saved have had our sins wiped away, who are watching, who are ready will not be punished by God's wrath to the unbeliever. That is what it's referencing when it talks about that God has not appointed his people unto wrath. It's referencing his wrath. The other major reason for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture is simply this, fear. They are so afraid of being persecuted that it is easier to believe that God will not make us face the tribulation period Fear of what the tribulation holds. But look at John 16, 33. It says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Not you might, not some people. It says, In this world ye shall have tribulation. And this goes beyond just speaking of the great tribulation. This is talking about life in general. 
that we will suffer persecution. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There is nothing that this world can throw at you. There is nothing that Satan can bring against you that God has not already accounted for. There is no position that you can be placed in that God does not already know and have a way of escape for you. We would like for that escape to be, let's just avoid it altogether. But I want to share with you one final thought. Corey Tinboon lived as a Christian in Europe during World War II. She was in a concentration camp because she supported the Jews. She would help hide Jews from the Nazis. After living through that experience, she penned many books about the need for Christians to learn how to endure persecution for Christ and not simply to pray to avoid them. In one such book, she stated, There are some among us teaching there will be no tribulation, that the Christians will be able to escape all of this. These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter days. Corey Timboom's words, not mine. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on around the world. I have been in countries where the saints are already suffering terrible persecution. She goes on to say, in China, the Christians were told, don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be translated, you will be raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop from China say sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them that Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, how to stand and not faint. Let's all stand. My mom and I would have many, many discussions before she passed away talking about end time. She grew up like so many, believing and hearing teach or taught that, that God would never allow us to go through the tribulation period. He loves his people. He wouldn't allow us to endure that. So we have to be gone. But one day I told her, I said, Mom, what is the purpose of the church on this earth? It's to bring the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Are you trying to tell me that during the world's greatest hour of need, God would just abandon everyone on earth, say, I give up, I quit, I don't, I'm not even going to give you a shot. Pull his people out and say, have fun. Or do you believe what Jesus told his disciples? That you will be persecuted for my name's sake. They will hate you because they first hated me. Don't worry about that. If they reject you, knock the dust off your sandals and move on to the next town. Because the purpose of the church is not to win popularity, but it's to help a lost and dying world reach salvation. There's a verse, I, I can't recall exactly where it is on the top of my head, but there's a, a verse that says that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. We so want Christ to return. I, I do. I want Christ to return. I'm ready. I am ready for all of this craziness to be over. 
But the Bible says that, the, that long-suffering of the Lord is an opportunity for salvation for the lost. God's heart is for the lost to be saved. And that means our heart must be the same. Not just look out for myself. Don't worry about everyone else. I just want to be gone. Don't worry about any of that. Instead, we need to pray, God, strengthen us. God, make us ready. God, let us watch for your return. Amen. 